and welcome to The Doctors Are In, the newest veterinary podcast for the animal lover. We're your hosts. I'm Kaylee. I'm Jake. I'd say why we started the podcast, but I don't think we started the podcast. I think Kaylee has been putting in some incredible effort to just kind of share the knowledge of, I guess, the veterinary student kind of lifestyle and share some interesting topics in vet med. Today we have a pretty interesting topic. It's it's about disease, which I'm sure a lot of you guys are probably used to. And, uh, you know, if you want to study vet med, you're probably aware of a couple examples of livestock diseases. Um, this one's probably the most famous of all livestock diseases. Um, but we'll get into that a bit later here. A bit more about me other than the intro, if you saw the trailer. Right now, I'm just taking a master's in public health and epidemiology at the University of Alberta. So I'm taking a, my DVM, Doctor of Vet Med, at Calgary. But I took a year off as part of a kind of a, a dual degree program there that kind of paid my way to go back to the U of A. So, you know, it's kind of a tough call. You lose the class you're going in with. You know, you make a bunch of friends, you meet a bunch of people in your first year, and then you kind of got to weigh the pros and cons of leaving for a year while they progress through the second year. And then, yeah, I finished up. I met a great supervisor. He was also a vet. Uh, he went to the University of Saskatchewan, graduated in 2003. He himself did a similar thing, took a PhD right after vet school in epidemiology, got a job at the U of A as a full-time professor. And honestly, it's been really good having a supervisor that is a vet, still does locum work, and he kind of he kind of gets the whole situation. He understands it's kind of a pioneering thing in, in Canada right now. I know a lot of American schools are doing this combined degree style thing where you do a DVM and an MPH, a master's in public health degree in five years. This was originally going to be that, but we both decided that a thesis-based degree would be, uh, be kind of the way to go. A bit more abstract learning, a bit less applied, but still kind of something you can kind of pave your own way through, you know? So, and trust me so far with COVID, it's been a lot easier to do thesis learning than actual classwork as you would do in an MPH. So yeah, that's a bit more about me. Okay. So I guess a, a bit more about myself. I guess I've been pretty obsessed with podcasts in the last year. A couple of my faves were My Favorite Murder, This Podcast Will Kill You, which is a great epidemiology disease podcast about uh, human medicine. So that one's really fun. And yeah, I was wanted to look into making a low-key animal vet med podcast uh, because I love talking about vet med and I got sick of having to uh, post on Facebook all the time and correct people. So I thought it would be easier to just start a podcast and talk about it. So I enlisted Jake and I don't know how I got him to say yes, but I think it involved a bit of a guilt trip for, as he said, leaving our class and our... Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'd, I'd like to. I'd like to hear the entire list of podcasts you listen to, and see if there's one that isn't about disease or or murder <laughs> or freaking serial killers. I mean, I'm sure those are the best podcasts. But as a guy who's pretty new to podcasts, I, I just yeah, I still I still have yet to find one that's been the right one. But you know, at least now, at least I'll know I'm we're in the podcast I want to listen to. So that's I listened good to a TED talk the other day, which is not my usual thing, but it was on livestock and antimicrobial resistance. So <laughs> at least you're learning in this time of pandemic and all that stuff. I oh, think yeah. I've 
rewatched my 18th show on Netflix, so I'm doing great there. But don't get me wrong, I just binged season four of Outlander in the last day, so it was really good. But I yeah, good. I haven't <laughs> watched it. I hear it's super romantic and super like slow. Um, slow usually at the beginning of seasons and without getting into too much no there's a lot of killing which wow i seem to have a theme here okay it's really good you should you i think you and marie would like it you should watch it yeah so i guess i'm going into third year vet yeah put it on your list i am not doing a master's public health because um i'm not really into the whole self-deprecation thing like jake is (laughs) i just love I just love it when I am getting evaluated, <laughs> said nobody ever. Yeah, I think we had to push this recording back like three times because he kept having meetings with his supervisor and new deadlines and stuff. And I'm spending my corona time getting research for Jake to do his end of the podcast and um, filling in shifts at on a local emergency clinic, which is super cool. I got to see three puppies on the weekend, like new puppies. amazing uh, at least you're doing something good with your time like other than writing it is way harder than it seems so i guess that's us and we'll probably start a podcast with a little bit of bickering because that's that's kind of what this friendship is built on that and insults okay i guess we'll do a quick intro into our topic for today for our first episode we chose to cover one of the most infamous cattle plagues as well as one of only two diseases ever to be eradicated. The first one was smallpox, and lots of you have heard of smallpox, I would hope. <laughs> um, so drumroll, please, for the one, the only, rinderpest. It is the most lethal cattle plague ever recorded in human history, and it has caused just massive declines in wildlife, huge famines, and billions of dollars in economic losses. Yeah, so it's ravaged populations of cattle for centuries before eradication and officially declared eradicated by the OIE in May of 2011. And I mean, like, I cannot stress enough how big of an accomplishment it is to eradicate a disease. Like, it's only ever been done twice. Why do they call it Rinderpest? That is actually German for something. Yeah, so big deal. I mean, if we have a German word for it, I'd say it's a big deal. You're probably right. (laughs) Okay, Jake, why don't you tell us a bit about the OIE and what eradication means? So Rinderpest was eradicated, meaning that it's still in labs, but it will never be found naturally again. At least fingers crossed, if you know what I mean here. I think the last case was in... Was it? I think it was 2001 because they needed a 10-year period. That's right. It was either Kenya or Sudan, I think, where they had the last case... And it's still in labs somewhere in the world. I know the UK destroyed all their samples. I'm not sure. Like, who knows? It might still be out there. Just no one knows if that's the case. But uh, yeah, so we shouldn't be seeing rinderpest anymore in in cattle populations. You were right. It's Kenya was the last case in 2001. Okay. Um, so I guess we'll start by defining a few words that we'll be using quite often today and in other episodes. And I'll also add some of these definitions to the Instagram account, Facebook, so you can find them easily. So to start, firstly, a pathogen, agent capable of causing disease. Pathology is the science of the cause and effect of disease. So mortality is a word we see pretty often used in news and media, and it refers to death due to, due to disease. <laughs> due to disease. 
That's a lot of words. A second word you might hear uh, every now and then is morbidity. Now, this one's uh, used a little, uh, little less commonly, and it refers to the amount of disease in the population. So morbidity is pretty much any animal with disease, suffering from disease at that time. So you may hear us refer to clinical signs when talking about an illness. And clinical signs are how we refer to animals showing signs of disease. So in vet med, we don't use the term symptoms like used in human med because this technically refers to something someone tells you is wrong with them. And because, you know, animals can't talk, we call it clinical signs because they either show us behaviorally or visually. Of course, there's going to be a ton of words that we're going to have to define and probably check the definition as we go, just to kind of make sure we're not talking about something that, you know, we glance over, you know, negative sense, RNA virus. What does that even mean, really? So we'll go through that make sure we leave no kind of stones unturned here. And then hopefully everything else kind of covers it. And as Kelly said, you know, a bunch of definitions can be posted. So if you kind of lose track or something, you can follow along online and uh, we'll check on that. So, yeah. All right, Jake, are you ready to learn today? Yeah. <laughs> because you guys can't see it, he just had like the biggest yawn I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Keeping the keeping the, <laughs> the viewers in the loop. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to be covering the pathology of rinderpest. So rinderpest was a disease of cloven-hoofed animals such as cattle and goats. So that means that their foot is divided into two. Um, and it was characterized by the three Ds. So diarrhea, discharge, and death. I love it. As we've said, it is considered to be the most lethal plague known to cattle. So rinderpest is a virus, which is a little package of proteins in either DNA or RNA. All viruses need a host to survive in and replicate because they cannot do it on their own. This is really good news for us when choosing a disease to eradicate because we don't have to worry about picking it up in the environment again over time. So Rinderpest is a member of a family of viruses called Paramyxoviridae, which also includes measles, mumps, and canine distemper. They're all super, super closely related. Measles came from Rinderpest because it was so widespread somewhere between the 11th and 12th centuries. Ha, I, I knew that. Did you know that? Yep. You just told me I knew it. <laughs> okay, so like other viruses, Rinderpest was an enveloped virus, and the envelope makes it more fragile, so it's easier for us to remove from surfaces. And Rinderpest specifically was very quickly inactivated by heat, desiccation, and sunlight. So just out in the environment, it died very quickly. Doesn't being an enveloped virus make it more resilient? I thought most viruses only had like a protein coat. I thought the lipid envelope was a th- like a, another boundary of protection. It's supposed to be, but it actually makes viruses more fragile against cleaners and detergents because it hooks onto that lipid envelope. Makes sense. Okay. So it actually attracts um, like disinfectants to it. See, and this is where taking a second year vet virology course would have come in handy. So clearly yeah. I missed the boat. Me and all of my, my bee glory. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. So viruses of this family are also really common in bats, which can infect humans and other animals with really high mortality. Because these viruses like to jump between hosts, as seen with rinderpest and measles, it makes these viruses a huge threat to public health. Jake's favorite two words. His wildlife species come more into contact with humans and domesticated animals through changes to their habitats. The opportunities increase for cross-species infections. This is something we're all too familiar with right now with COVID-19. 
And this is a huge concept that we'll probably try and tackle in a future episode because Jake's baby is One Health. I mean, you say it like that's a bad thing. I mean, (laughs) not really, but it's super interesting. You are the pride and joy of our school. I mean, let's be realistic. I think I think veterinary medicine is entirely one health based. You know, public health is one health, which is veterinary medicine. And then and there's it, human med off in their own little bubble. Ultimately, when it comes down to it, yeah, you're right. I think it's all one big thing, you know. And it's just it should be treated as one big thing. And you can see Jake's already getting into it. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> Holy crap. Uh, okay, so Rinderpest not only like to infect cows... But it had a lot of other natural hosts, including a lot of different types of African wildlife, such as wildebeest, antelope, deer, kudu, giraffes, and hippos. So in this section, right? Hippos. Holy shit. I was surprised. I've actually got a really good firsthand account later on, and I love it because it talks about elephants. Um, I guess, yeah. Are elephants ruminants? I think they're like a pseudo-ruminant. They'd have to be like... A ruminant or a hindgunt fermenter because of all the forage they eat. But I don't know. Probably like a horse. Okay. Maybe like a horse, yeah. So (laughs) I guess I will uh, walk you through the the transmission and pathogenesis of this disease. So imagine this. You're a farmer in Kenya in the 1890s, and then one day you notice a couple cows standing off from your herd, not interested in grazing, and they don't really care that you're there which for cows is totally not normal. So in the vet world, we have a technical term for this, ADR. Or in other words, ain't doing right. On closer inspection... Holy crap, I missed that class. (laughs) That's something I picked up in clinic. (laughs) On closer inspection, you see that the cows have a pussy or purulent discharge from their eyes and nose and seem really depressed. You come back in a few days to more cows with this discharge... And others have progressed to a bloody mucousy diarrhea. Your poor cows have mouths full of necrotic lesions and high fevers. This is a disease you had never seen before. Before you knew it, in the span of a couple months, their bloated bodies covered the ground and your entire herd and livelihood is dead. While this is an extreme case, it was the unfortunate reality for so many people for centuries. So here I have a first-hand account of, from this time on the western bank of Lake Victoria in Africa. <clears throat> the beasts must endure great suffering. They bellow with a rattling sound as they stretch their legs on the ground in a helpless manner. A yellowish liquid flows from their mouth even after death. Many of the smaller beasts show spots on the hide when dead, as if they had rubbed the skin off. But I did not observe this in the case of the larger ones. For weeks together in Bukaba, we daily lost four to eight of the smaller animals, and from time to time, some of the full-grown cattle. All right. So I love that quote, but uh, I guess- Super powerful. Right? It's just like, it's just insane. Um, So the question is, how could a herd go from totally healthy to decimated in a few months? So uh, for our cover art for this episode, it's a picture, and it's one of the most famous pictures of Rinderpest, and it's just dead cattle everywhere. And it was from Africa after they were hit by one of the waves. So Rinderpest virus is shed in the nasal and ocular secretions of infected animals, and it can be transmitted during its incubation period, which is the period where a virus replicates and begins to cause disease. So this virus can be spread between animals, before they even start showing any signs of it. 
Transmission required really close contact between the animals, and there was no carrier state like so many other viruses, and recovered animals got lifelong immunity, which is a big deal. (laughs) Because there are some viruses out there that you get, and then after several years, you can get again, which is not good if you want to make a vaccine and get rid of it. Not good at all, no, seriously. Yeah, so once an animal was exposed to this virus, it was inhaled into the respiratory tract and it became trapped in the mucus. So normally this mucus is a protective measure created by bodies. However, Rinderpest had evolved to surpass it. And it's still not clear how it managed to penetrate through this layer, but it's theorized that it has something to do with uh, something called leukocyte trafficking, which is common with viruses. This is when it uses the animal's own white blood cells to travel around the body like it's a taxi. Once inside the white blood cells, the first stop was the tonsils, where initial replication occurs. And as we go through more diseases, you'll find that the tonsils is like the favorite first place for respiratory viruses to go and a lot of viruses. Don't ask me why. They just love the tonsils. Now, this virus would make so many copies of itself that the white blood cell would get so incredibly full that it would burst open and die, releasing more virus to infect more cells. As infection progressed, the virus reached more lymph nodes, which were pretty much the truck stops of the body. And from here, it had access to infect even more cells and soon was spread systemic. And along the way, it killed massive amounts of white blood cells. This incubation period can last anywhere from three to five days. And remember, like I said, it is being passed on to other animals during this time. And then the systemic spread through the blood causes the animal to develop a really high fever, and that's called the short prodromal phase. The second phase is the mucosal phase. It's named this because when the ocular nasal secretions begin and the sores are seen in the mouth. Now, the primary target of rinderpest was the pears patches in the intestine and the Langerhans cells in the epithelium of the mouth and esophagus. This causes massive cell death on any mucosal surface, which lines our mouths, guts, etc. And at this point, the animal's in a huge amount of pain, feeling terrible, and this causes anorexia and lethargy. Now, this is also when the discharge becomes purulent and the body dumps all of its dead white blood cells the virus had killed. And now, the last phase is really nasty and is characterized by severe watery and hemorrhagic diarrhea. Pears patches that I'd mentioned are sites of lymphatic tissue in the intestines, and they are now dead in a site for blood loss. And I'm going to send Jake a picture of the intestines so that he can see what I had to see. Please don't. I don't want to see it. Oh, my God, no. <laughs> Look at it. Ew. Ew. Yeah, so the animals... wonder, like, viruses are so... Viruses are weird. So scary. They're so insane, and like, yeah, they freak me out. Like trafficking? Like, are those things, like, ugh, I wonder if, like, they're alive, but they're so sophisticated in their, in their methods, and there's so many types. Yeah, fun fact, scary. viruses aren't scary, actually scary. living. They're spontaneously assembling bits of protein, which freaks me out so much. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the I mean, animal... Frick, it kind of depends. Like, they kind of are living. I don't know. I think the definition of whether or not something is living is that it has to be able to reproduce on its own. And viruses have to use our own okay, cellular well, machinery. And yeah, then by that definition, I'd say yeah, they're not living. 
yeah, there's lots of definitions. It's a huge debate. It's lots of fun. But kind of makes uh, you wonder though. It's like how did they, how did they kind of come to be? Like, do viruses evolve? They've evolved. Evolution is kind of a exclusive to the. Well, uh, so are they living? If they evolved with us. That's a good question. That is beyond the scope of this podcast, Jacob. Bro, you sound like you're writing a you sound like you're writing a thesis. You know, oh, I just found some contradictory evidence that is beyond the scope of this review. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> oh, I don't have time to go into that. Time. That is that is beyond the scope of this review. <laughs> Boom. Typing those words out. Oof. Power move right there. <laughs> Okay. Uh, yeah. So like that picture I showed you, it also gets more, the animal get more sites of hemorrhage in the rectum and it creates a classic zebra striping, which is on postmortem was how they knew that it was rinderpest because it was just so characteristic to that disease. Um, yeah. So in the end, so much mucosa is killed and sloughed off in the gut that the animal pretty much ends up pooping out its own intestines. It's just like disintegrating and then the animal will succumb to immense dehydration and dies and death only occurs like it'll occur within six to 12 days after symptoms first appear which is really fast all right so morbidity is often around a hundred percent which means as jake said that nearly every single animal in the herd will be affected. And mortality is up to 90% in epidemic areas, which are areas that have never seen the virus before, such as African countries in the late 1800s. But because infection causes lifelong immunity, endemic areas, which have this virus go through often, had low morbidity and clinical signs were generally pretty mild. And something really interesting to know is that rinderpest has a very similar r naught value to measles. So r naught is the number of animals or people that are infected from a single case. And do you know what the measles value is, Jake? Isn't it like I think the isn't that like really high for measles? It's like it's like eight or twelve or something like that. It's pretty high, isn't it? Dude, it's twelve to eighteen. Yeah. Okay. So that what does that mean again? That means like for every person infected, they're expected to infect twelve that at many, least twelve. Twelve to eighteen That's, people. What's COVID's? Isn't COVID's like two to three? It is one to two. That's insane. That's yeah, insane. it depends on the paper that you look at. And the 1918 influenza pandemic was two to three. And if you think so, about how like everyone got that, like 12 to 18 is insane. So like vaccinate people. <laughs> I guess that would affect the herd immunity threshold, particularly, wouldn't it? To having such a, a high like R naught like that. That's why morbidity was 100% when the mm, virus went are, through. Uh, Okay. For those who missed that, herd immunity is just kind of the concept of vaccinate, not necessarily 100% of people, but just enough to where the people who are vulnerable, or in this case, the animals, don't have to worry about getting infected. So, yeah, I so guess with the an R0 of that, for, I, would, I wouldn't rely on herd immunity because of that R0 unless I'd assume that you probably have to vaccinate like 99%. Yeah. Which is crazy, which did make the eradication campaign a little harder because of that infectivity. Um, but yeah, so I guess to wrap things up here, um, before we had better tests to identify rinderpest, it was super hard to diagnose because it looked like other diseases, specifically bovine viral diarrhea, but it also looked similar to East Coast fever, foot and mouth disease, infectious bovine rhinotracheitis, and malignant catarrhal fever. So more recent years, we've had the technology to do like rapid testing and use ELISA or RT-PCR 
which were favored towards the end of the eradication campaign because the test results came back really quickly and were way more accurate than other methods, such as like doing postmortems and looking for that zebra striping to confirm that it was indeed render pests. So this was a huge advantage. All right. So we've gone through what's going on in the infected animals. So it's Jake's turn for some history. Great sidebar. Or how cool are cows? Like literally the vaccines, the name vaccine is from a cow. Like, oh, <laughs> you didn't like cows enough already. Holy crap. So originated in Asia, put in perspective how old it is. It's one of the great 10 plagues of Egypt and like ancient Egypt. Quite an old, old disease compared to a lot of the newer kind of, you know, zoonotic diseases you hear about. And it's like the amazing part is it was only eradicated officially like nine years ago. So to put in perspective how long this thing's been around and causing problems is, is quite impressive as far as any disease goes. So according to the OIE, the first rinderpest epidemic that certainly occurred, and they use that word bolded, certainly, was between 376 AD and 386 AD. The first clinical descriptions of the disease were made available in 1712 by Bernardino, Bernardino Ramazzani. <laughs> We should put an asterisk. So sorry for the Italian names mispronounced here. Who was a senior professor of medicine at Padua University, Italy. And then through cattle trade and wild animal reservoirs, uh, come the 18th century. So if you guys didn't know that, that's the 1700s. I was uh, just informed of that the other week. You're Kidding, welcome. Yeah. Right. <laughs> when we're talking hundreds of years, the difference in saying the 18th century or the 1700s, it's like minimal, minimal. It was a huge problem in Europe. Uh, three major panzoonotics uh, throughout the 1700s, kind of 20-year gaps in between. And the most, uh, you know, kind of most agreed upon reason for that is it spread through military campaigns that involved the use of animal labor, especially these ruminant animals like cattle. What other ruminant animals are there? Ox uh, and other animals like that. Just, you know, a manual animal labor, especially before the invention of machines and steam-powered engines and all that. That's cool. So after moving from Asia, it did kind of wreak havoc in Europe for uh, a couple decades, especially in the 1800s there. We had three panzoonotics, as I mentioned earlier. So kind of a couple of highlights here. We talked about how, you know, vaccination was really pioneered for smallpox, but there were still some historically relevant attempts related to the field of medicine to kind of solve the situation of Rinderpest. So a couple of the earlier attempts, and we're talking like mid to, mid 1600s, mid you know early 1700s, uh, there were attempts to protect cattle. So they knew this was a, something that could be transmitted through cattle. Didn't exactly know what yet. When was germ theory? What was that? Germ was theory started coming germ in, theory. I think, in the 1700s because it was un it was under debate for ages. And actually, I was just listening to this. I, I read something where. Um, it was describing how germ theory was uh, very problematic to actually treating disease because people went from knowing that, oh, with the theory before of spontaneous generation and stuff, it was like, well, bad air could get you sick. And then when germ theory came out, they were like, oh, it's this thing. They were looking so much into the pathogen and the agent of disease that they forgot to do prevention so people stopped caring about crowded places as much and it was kind of a bit of a underlying problem that isn't talked about much with germ theory which is kind of neat jesus 
honestly, you'd think that germ theory was going out of fashion nowadays with all the resistance to quarantine measures and stuff like that. Right. But, uh, I think that's just common if, sense is going out of fashion. Yeah, man. Frick. Some of us need a haircut. Look at me. I'm kidding, obviously. You're, you're pretty uh, hairy. So it was, uh, it was a big problem in this Europe in the 18th century. And at this point, the general miasma, that bad air theory, was still kind of predominant. But... It's funny, they, they were trying to protect them with cloth of impregnated, contaminated fluids. So they thought, they literally had like the right idea. How? Like this is like 100 years before vaccines. That's insane. Because the secretions have all the, like the infectious parts in it. So they were using like the discharge to inoculate the other cows then? In sheep yes. and stuff? Oh my gosh. I guess they weren't using the word inoculation. And that was what, the 1700s? 1630s to 1714. Yeah, it was like late 1600s. That is so cool. The 17th century. But um, so apparently inoculation was uh, kind of, you know, at a high level understood in the sense that as early as uh, the 17th century, physicians were trying to protect cattle using cloth impregnated with contaminated fluid. And they called those settins. So... They would just lay them on cows, hopefully, that the cow, that would confer immunity. They didn't understand why or how it worked, but uh, clearly it was uh, you know, relevant enough to be recorded in history. I just quickly looked up those um, strips you were talking about that they did in like the 1600s to inoculate the animals. And apparently it was bits of material that they dipped in what they call morbid discharge in an incision made in the dewlap of the animal. Okay. Huh. The dewlap, remind me what that is. Because I, I know, knew what a dewlap was in preference to moose. <laughs> that sounds super Canadian, um, but I didn't know every animal technically has it. So I guess it would kind of be like what a brisket is on a cow. Oh, okay. so, so it's like the flobbly part. Yeah, so they did an incision in the skin under the neck and then dipped cloth in mm. that. I'm thinking that maybe they didn't know, but they were taking like juice from like the lymph nodes or something. Prior to Edward Jenner's discovery of vaccination in 1796, there were multiple attempts to inoculate cattle against reindeer pest in the 1750s, 1760s, and 1770s. One of the more noteworthy attempts was by was this, like this farmer guy, he was a self-taught farmer who performed multiple inoculation trials with varying success. Oh, this one's great. So this is like a piece of history right here. So to put in perspective how important this freaking disease was, is this guy in the 1700s noticed that calves born to mothers who had render pest were immune from the disease, a.k.a. this guy apparently discovered or just noticed without really even knowing what he's discovered, the first instance of eternal, eternal immunity. immunity. Oh my gosh, I love that. I forget that lecture, what was that? So that's like antibodies, right? Yeah, so quick briefing on what maternal immunity is. So primates are the only animals with, I can't remember the type of placenta, placental barrier they have. But they should know that, oh my God. Yeah, I know, there's three types. So they have- It's like the, it's like the, it's like the shittiest little one. Yeah, so they have the weakest amount of protection. So no, it's hemochorionic. Hemochorionic, because they share blood. So the, 
the oh antibodies can cross from a human mother to a child, which can cause all its own issues. But when you're born, you have your mother's antibodies to protect you. Animals don't have that. So they have something called colostrum, which is the first milk. So an animal, when it's born, has to drink a certain amount of this colostrum within 24 hours of birth in order to ingest the mother's antibodies. So the mother like pumps a bunch of her antibodies. So her immunity, per se, into the colostrum, the baby drinks it, and then it gets absorbed into the baby's bloodstream. And there's a whole bunch of issues when it comes to failure of passive transfer, because animals, if they don't get this colostrum within the first 24 hours, they will die of infection because they, their own immune system doesn't mature until they're like, and that's why we also don't vaccinate animals right away. And we can't vaccinate babies right away because the maternal antibodies will fight off the vaccine antigens and the baby's immune system has, will never have been exposed to it. So maternal um, immunity is cool. I love it. <laughs> so that's really interesting that that was first, the, the recording of that first being acknowledged was with Rinderpest. Crazy. <laughs> Whoa, dude, that's crazy. <laughs> so that's cool. So that cool. is so cool, dude. <laughs> oh, so exciting. Holy crap. Maternal immunity. What? I know. Like, to think of that back then without knowing what immunity was, but to link it, that is so cool. Just like how Jenner linked, you know, like, the the cowpox and smallpox together. I mean, Honestly, to be realistic, like, this guy didn't notice. He didn't observe maternal immunity. Yeah, he made the connection without knowing what was baby happening. baby calves. Yeah, okay. He just, like, he's like, wow, these calves are fine for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. I found that the first written report of Rinderpest inoculation was published as a letter just signed T.S. in November 1954 issue of the Gentleman's Magazine, which was a journal, like a scientific journal that was widely read by educated people in Britain. After the discovery of the vaccination against smallpox by Edward Jenner in 1796, there were trials to vaccinate cattle against Rinderpest using the smallpox vaccine because they thought that they were... Um, very similar to each other. Very similar, eh? Yeah. So there were, the two types of smallpox are di in a completely different family than Rinderpest. They oh, are yeah, in like, the family Pox viridae and the genius Orthopox virus. Like, pox viruses are nasty. No, Rinderpest is Paramyxoviridae. Jesus. First try you said that right. Holy crap. Impressive. Don't I sound smart? <laughs> in front of the mirror. You're like in front of the mirror. You're like Paramyxoviridae. Paramyxoviridae. Is that right? I don't even know. I like saying it. It's fun. <laughs> so, so between 1865 and 1867, Britain suffered an unprecedented renderpest epizootic. Epizootic? What's epizootic mean, Jake? Tell I hate me. that word. That is like a, that's a tough word. Epizootic. You just sound goofy saying it. Epizootic. Epizootic? Epizootic. Epidemic. Sounds way cool. And so, by the way, an epizootic is like essentially equivalent to epidemic, uh, but for animals. And to kind of give you an explanation, it's an uncharacteristically uh, sudden and impactful rise in the incidence of disease in an area. So, just to kind of clarify here, it's not epi like what's the endemic? 
version of for, for animals endemic versus enzootic oh perfect look at that enzootic so an enzootic disease is uh is just kind of a persistent underlying disease in the area so it's kind of environmentally linked so for an example in large parts of africa for a while there animals brought into an area were bound to get render pests just because it was enzootic to the area meaning that there was kind of a baseline level of diseased incidents that never changed and that could just be a side effect of you know never getting rid of the disease in the first place or uh, never having sustained large populations to support uh, an enzootic epizootic epizootic outbreak <laughs> and then obviously you have panzootic which is a and epizootic uh, disease that crosses borders. So as mentioned earlier, the first veterinary school, Leon, uh, being founded in Leon, uh, largely as a result of Rinderpest, the first graduates from those that school were sent to the countryside to fight Rinderpest and other kind of major disease of horned animals. Rinderpest throughout history played a key role in the development of medical sciences, especially in the fields of microbiology. You forgot to mention, I just saw this, that the guy who found or like first noted maternal immunity, his last name was Reindeers. Dude, he was from the Netherlands. That is amazing. Is that a thing in the Netherlands? Reindeers? Reindeers. It's reindeers. Whatever. It looks like reindeers. So to kind of also put in perspective how crazy Rinderpest was, this is from the FAO, so this might be like legit is they're saying that Rinderpest proceeded just because it was so devastating for both economic and, you know, health and safety reasons, i.e. starvation, that it preceded the fall of not only the Roman Empire, but the conquest of Europe by Charlemagne, which that is a dope name. That's awesome. The French Revolution and the impoverishment of Russia. I don't know if these are like legit, like it's tough to verify, but (laughs) when Rinderpest was introduced, yeah, but like, that's just funny to say, like, preceded the french revolution you know it's like i just watched this movie called patriot you ever hear that you ever see that the no. patriot I, I think i've heard of it i ever tell you that's like that funny it's like the french you know when the french revolution was uh yeah late 1700s early 1800s right so it's like the american revolutionaries asking for france's help to defeat the british in a revolution style only to 10 years later be like, revolted against themselves I was like, dude, that's been hilarious. Imagine being like a French citizen. You're like, wow, these Americans are kicking ass. And the French are going to help them. Maybe we should do the same. <laughs> Literally guillotines in the streets 10 years later. Like, oh, man. That's Imagine. interesting, though, that they've linked it possibly to the French Revolution because it was the huge amount of famine that was causing People were, yeah. the issue. People were dying. That is really, like, the losses, really The losses of these animals was devastating. Um, here it says, when Rinderpest was introduced to sub-Saharan Africa at the end of the 19th century, it triggered extensive famines and opened the way for the colonization of Africa. So essentially, I mean, the history the history of the world altered by this disease, like, I can't even imagine how it would be different. How, how, how would the colonization of Africa be, have affected, you know, the world in a different manner? It's like you're unwrapping layers <clears throat> and layers of like just history and how it made it easier for things to just be demolished. What was the green revolution here? It's saying subsequent control of Rinderpest contributed to the green revolution in agricultural production. 
know. I don't know much about agriculture. So the Green Revolution, or also known as the Third Agricultural Revolution, um, is a set of research technology transfer initiatives between 1950 and the 1960s. So particularly in the developing world. So I guess it was bringing, um, it looks like things like pesticides and fertilizers over to um, developing countries. And GMOs. Love me some GMOs. So rinderpest was an ancient disease whose signs were recognized long before it was given its current name. Now, the virus, this is kind of like mentioned earlier, but the virus could well have been the origin of the human measles virus, which is nuts when you think about it. So uh, they transfer, this is kind of the first example of like your classic zoonotic disease, you know, the integration of cattle in human agriculture and the kind of mingling of the two species led to a jump in that virus from species to species. This is an exact case of what's happening for more and more nowadays with the intensification of agriculture. And it, you know, it'd be reasonable to assume that you'd see more examples of this. And uh, you know, look at today, COVID, SARS-CoV-2, that virus is another example of a disease that jumped. Um, historical accounts of rinderpests suggest that it began in the central steeps of Eurasia, later sweeping across Europe and the rest of Asia with military campaigns and livestock imports. Rinderpest has always been considered the disease of war. Later in the 19th and 20th centuries, the disease had moved into parts of Africa where it quickly devastated the naive populations there. A quick example of how the virus was thought to have devastated Africa was when Indian cattle were brought by Italians into Eritrea in 1887 for a war campaign against Somalia. The diseased cattle quickly spread rinderpest throughout the Horn of Africa, finally crossing the line into Zambezi in March of 1896. This episodic in Zambezi was thought to have been the, one of the worst episodics in Southern African history, where it killed more than 5 million cattle south of the Zambezi, as well as domesticated oxen, sheep, and goats. This led to the starvation of the populace, resulting in the death of an estimated third of the population of Ethiopia and two-thirds of the Maasai people of Tanzania. A first-hand account of those deaths of the Maasai people in Tanzania comes from a German explorer, Oscar Bowman, who reached the Ngorogoro crater in 1892. He described the results of cattle losses and famine upon the people of Maasai. There were women reduced to walking skeletons, out of whose sunken eyes looked the madness of hunger. Children resembling deformed frogs rather than human beings. Warriors who could hardly crawl on all fours. And moronic, emaciated graybeards. These people ate everything available. Dead donkeys were a delicacy to them. But they also devoured the skin and bones and even horns of cattle. Swarms of vultures followed them, waiting for the victims. That's insane. In the sub-Saharan Africa, Rinderpest killed so much cattle that the landscape actually was permanently changed. So, for example, it allowed the growth of vegetation that favored the spread of the, the CC fly, which transmits African sleeping sickness, and that caused it to kill thousands and thousands of people every year. And that is um, considered to be one of the causes of major epidemics of African sleeping sickness. Like, this is crazy. The one health implications of rinderpest are honestly still probably being unrooted and discovered. I mean, you look at the environmental impact. I'm sure there was periods of you know time where the Sahara and like all these like this you know 
the safaris and stuff like that were left untouched by roaming herds of cattle and other clothed animals just because they were, you know, all dead. Moving on, we see the other physicians, uh, Italian physician uh, Giovanni Maria Lancisi. I don't know why I said that right. Wow, you said, that sounded very convincing. Thank God, thank God. Uh, recommended certain control methods uh, to prevent the spread of disease, uh, aka epidemiological methods, which are still valid today. And 60 years later, we see the creation of the first veterinary school in the world. So this is the formalization of the veterinary medical profession, uh, open up in Lyon, France. Uh, and they were, and it was opened up specifically to teach those principles of disease prevention mentioned earlier, developed by the epidemiologist Giovanni Maria Lancisi. So it was created specifically to teach possible veterinarians about treating rid the pest or preventing it. Yeah, I'd say disease prevention in the context of animal health. So after the opening of the first veterinary school, it apparently was a big problem still in Europe throughout the, you know, the, those decades. And come 1871, uh, there was a, a spike in render pest outbreaks in Europe, which led to a, an international conference in Vienna at the time, which uh, sought recommendations for the eradication of render pest from Europe. This kind of precluded the formation of the International Institute of Agriculture, formed in 1908 in Rome. It was kind of created to gather statistical information on agricultural activities in kind of a, a, a one-stop shop there. And its duties were handed over to the World uh, the Food and Agriculture Organization once the creation of the uh, United Nations was, was uh, finished. It's funny how the OIE was formed before the UN. Right? They recognized that like, cool. animal health was yeah, a the big UN, issue. The o- yeah, mm-hmm. clearly. Like they, before there was even the WHO, the OIE, so the World Organization for Animal Health formed in 1924, was created specifically as an intergovernmental effort to combat render pest. So it was quite, it was quite a problem. Incredible. Yikes. So following the creation of the OIE during World War II, the United States and Canada began working on a render pest vaccine in order to protect against the possible use of the virus as a weapon. After the war, the FAO began to convene regular meetings involving animal health authorities from around the globe in order to guide and kind of coordinate various national campaigns against rinderpest. One of these campaigns called the Joint Project 15, or JP15, launched under the auspice of the Organization of African Unity. This campaign embarked on the ambitious regional vaccination program against rinderpest. By the 1970s, the disease has been beaten back in many African nations, but some governments scaled down or canceled the vaccination programs. Holy crap. Later leading to a resurgence of the disease. Can you imagine that? So the JP15 was launched in 1963, and by 1970, the disease has been scaled back down to almost being eradicated. That's crazy. And, and then, then they not stopped. Even, that's insane. So yeah, after they scaled back, an explosive outbreak in Africa kills millions of animals, leading to billions of dollars in losses. So this is the considered the last African panzudic. So in 1980, the FAO's technical cooperation program provided emergency assistance amounting to USD to uh, $6 million. That's nothing. The guy in 1960s who made the, a Rinderpest vaccine to be made at low cost and was using living organisms was actually 
the same method. So that was created for Rinderpest, and that method was used to create an oral polio vaccine. I'm so like, that affects elsewhere as well. Holy crap. I'm losing my mind. There's just so much stuff, and there's no way we could possibly cover everything. So, um, like, wow. So despite earlier efforts of containment, and they almost succeeded, Rinderpest recolonizes swaths of Asia, stretching from Bangladesh to Turkey. And this is in the 80s. Our parents lived through this. Holy crap. So before it was officially, you know, the eradication program began, there's a couple of requirements for a disease to be considered eradicated. And those are kind of the key guiding elements around this program. So, yeah, I don't know. What are some of the, the key elements? So eradication is not possible for every disease. And before Jake goes into the timeline of how Rinderpest is taken out, I'll cover some requirements that is needed of a pathogen to successfully eliminate a disease. Many of these requirements that make a disease a good candidate, I've mentioned briefly in pathogenesis. These aren't the only factors, but some really important ones. So number one, vaccination and immunity. I touched on this already that once an animal gets Rinderpest and if it recovers, it, re it acquires lifelong immunity. This means that with an effective vaccine, one exposure is all that's needed. This is incredibly significant, especially for rural areas, because it makes it a lot easier to control than, say, dogs, where vaccinations are required much more frequently as well. One vaccine provided cross-protection against all three strains of Rinderpest, which is also huge. Two, limited wildlife reservoirs. This was one of the more challenging aspects of Rinderpest eradication as there was an infectious cycle in the wild populations. Luckily, it was limited to larger cloven-hoofed mammals, so it was considered fairly limited as opposed to rabies, which can infect nearly every animal, which makes it almost impossible to eradicate. Another example of a terrible candidate being West Nile virus or any other mosquito-borne illness because good luck getting rid of any of those little buggers. My third and last point is whether or not the disease is easily recognizable and diagnosable. I have already mentioned that the development of a reliable ELISA and RT-PCR tests were essential for eradication because Rinderpest looks so similar to so many diseases at first and because animals are infectious before clinical signs are present. It is essential to catch it as early as possible. Back to you, Jake. So with those kind of eradication criterion in mind here, the FAO begins talks with affected countries in, in order to discuss the establishment of a global coordinated anti-render press campaign. So kind of similar to what we saw with smallpox here. Um, now, the first kind of major international campaign was the Pan-African Render Pest Campaign which began operating in 34 African countries to kind of put in scale, to scale how devastating and how prevalent Rinderpest was in Africa. So by, nine, by 1896, by 1986, uh, the first thermostable vaccine, which, you know, is more resistant to high temperatures, is developed, making vaccine camp campaigns in Africa much more effective. Because prior to this, you needed a vaccine that was able to survive without being refrigerated, which, you know... I'm pretty sure Rinderpest was actually one of the direct was was a was a push for the development of thermostable vaccines capable of being transported without refrigeration. 
I can't recall exactly, but there's the lack of electricity and yeah, that I think is it a was huge, a huge something like that. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely led to that development because without that, without without that breakthrough, we're not seeing effective vaccination campaigns in the more remote areas of Africa, where there certainly still could be large populations of cattle. With this development, by 1992, the FAO forecast the elimination of rinderpest in 2005 with the verification of freedom from infection by 2010. Well, oh, they were dead on of that. Holy crap. That's pretty impressive. Wow. So by 94, the FAO's global rinderpest eradication program, so this is kind of the global variant of the earlier discussed one, the Pan-African one, with support from the OIE, is formed to coordinate the global eradication of rinderpest by 2010. By 96, the vision and prime elements of the GREP, Global Render Pest Eradication Program, are defined, essentially kind of covering what Kaylee mentioned earlier. Blueprints for the progress towards freedom from render pest are established in each member country. 2009, the FAO and the OIE reached an agreement for the establishment of the Joint FAO-OIE Committee for the Global Declaration of Render Pest. So essentially, they kind of agreed when it's done, it's done, and we'll be able to say together, yeah, we've eliminated it. We're free from render pests. There's no chance at reinfection. 2010, the FAO director, Jack Duth, states in the World Food Day in 2010 that the FAO is concluding its field operations and expects to formally declare eradication of render pests by 2011 together with the OIE. Imagine being the guy who gave that speech. Like, that's insane. Like, yo, by the way. Uh, who knows when the about. next time you will get to say something like that ever happens. Right? <sighs> wow. So 2011 is officially declared done and done. So I guess like with that in mind, it's been eradicated since 2011. Is there any risk of reemergence? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so while Rinderpest has been eradicated, it's not extinct. And this is because there's multiple labs around the world that currently have samples. And the OIE strongly recommends that labs don't keep them and destroy them or they can send them to an approved OIE lab for destruction. And I just like, I don't know why people keep this crap around. And it's, people are worried about it possibly being used as a bioterrorism weapon in the future uh, because it is so infectious. Uh, so Jake, guess how many countries have labs that currently hold Rinderpest? This was a survey done several years ago, but there hasn't been a new one since. So how many do you think? Um, shot in the dark, like three. Oh my God. Okay. A little higher. <laughs> Five. Okay. So an, an FAO survey found 36 countries admitted to having labs that held it. 36. And there were over a dozen countries that didn't even respond to their survey, including uh, one in North America. <laughs> Very recently, on the 14th of June, 2019, the largest ever stock of Rinderpest virus was destroyed at the Peerbright Institute. And the Peerbright Institute is, was formerly called the Institute for Animal Health in England. And it's dedicated to the study of infectious diseases of farm animals. And it actually, I'm reading this and I'm like, oh, this sounds familiar. That's because I believe they are implicated in the release, the accidental <laughs> release of mad cow disease in England. Really? Don't quote me on that, but 
Yeah, there was an outbreak in England, and it was tracked back to a lab. And this lab sounds really familiar. I'm, I will double check that and let people know on the next episode. But yes, pretty, pretty insane. So yeah, surveillance for Rinderpest is ongoing by the OAE in many countries have their own additional measures. Honestly, the greatest threat of reemergence isn't due to it spontaneously mutating from another virus, like say measles going back into cows. It is the biggest threat is due to a leak from a lab, just like a BSE outbreak in the UK. So it's, it's scary. I wish we could get rid of it. But yeah, there's also labs that contain smallpox as well. And people have been worried about that for years. I don't think it's something that'll ever go away. I think people just are scared of letting it go forever. But honestly, we don't need it. I don't know why we keep it. But yeah, so that's Rinderpest for you. We're done. Oh my God, how exciting is that? Our first episode. That's a lot of work though, I'll tell you what. Oh wait, is this for like the public? Okay, yeah, that was like... (laughs) You can know it's a lot of work. (laughs) Obviously, there's a lot more to undercover or uncover uh, and, you know, all that. And feel free to do your own research. Let us know what you find. You can email us with anything about Rinderpest or suggestions for future topics or any vet med questions um, at thedoctorsarein at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you guys. We also have a Facebook page. Yeah. And you can follow us on Instagram at thedoctorsarein for the supplemental material that we'll post and future updates on the podcast. Pause Pause out. out. Thanks guys. Oh,